Hello and welcome to this Ockley Books podcast. We're now in the second half of our rundown of six of the football figures who feature in Portrait of an Icon, the book that brings together Daniel Story's football365.com profiles of the same name. I'm Chris Nee, and I'm joined by Ockley Books' David Hartrick. Hello, Dave. Hello, mate. Uh, big one this week. Yes, very big, <laughs> in every sense of the word. Big Paul. Um, and we're joined, of course, by Daniel Story to talk about a player this week who happens to be very close to my heart. Before we kick off, I'd like to remind you that Portrait of an Icon is available to buy from ockleybooks.co.uk now, and proceeds will be donated to the Sir Bobby Robson Foundation. Let's bring in the author. Uh, hello to you again, Dan. Hello. We've spoken so far about Bobby Robson, uh, Ronaldo, and David Beckham. You won't get any argument from me about any of those. What puts Paul McGrath in that company? When I started the series, and certainly when I realised it was going to be a book, I didn't just want it to be a list of what I considered to be the best 50 players and managers of all time, because I, I think that lacks something. When we talk about icons, I wanted to have some human interest stories. I wanted to have um, something that was maybe sits outside the norm. And I, I don't want to use that as a an insult to McGrath at all, but... This is not just about Paul McGrath, the player. This is about Paul McGrath, the human. And it's it's mainly about football. And I use that word in inverted commas because I mean all stakeholders in the game. We need a reminder every now and then that players are not robots. That financial wealth and success and adoration does not act as a blanket or a thicker skin above things like mental illness, addiction and depression. Um and they are three topics where McGrath and football are intrinsically linked. It's definitely a story with two sides. Yeah. You know, those those factors are all a part of McGrath's life. Um, I know you've read his autobiography, mm. which is disturbing in the extreme, really. Yeah. It's certainly Harrowing. for someone who's, who's held him in a lot of esteem um, throughout my childhood and, and kind of coming to understand his troubles a bit better as a grown-up. Um and it began, perhaps unsurprisingly, with, um, we'll call it a difficult childhood. Yeah. Um, so he, he was brought up in orphanages, um, really never quite had the stability that, that you might need to become a fully rounded, socially adept adolescent. And mm. the impact of that on the adult life of Paul McGraw has, has been you know, tragically profound doesn't it yeah um he had no self-confidence whatsoever um completely lacking self-confidence um was given up by his mother a few days old uh, she she traveled from ireland to london to have the baby because to have a multiracial child as a single parent in 1950s ireland was not the done thing um was brought up in eventually in Cairns and orphanages in ireland um but just completely lacking in any self-confidence um, a very troubled man or a very troubled adolescent who happened to be brilliant at football. The, the story of Paul McGrath is kind of littered with these horrible little echoes of, of tragedy. And, and one of them is, as a kid, collecting stickers, you'd get Paul McGrath and there'd be a fact sheet on them about, you know, I was born here and in this time. And it just says, born Ealing. Yeah, mm. and you, you don't think twice about it as a kid. No, like as far as you think about it, is London's not an island. Mm. I wonder how that happened, and you don't go into it. But no. 
the actual reality behind the story of that mm. is, you know, as, as good an indication as any as to, to why McGraw the man grew up to have the, the problems that he did. And the biggest of those problems um, is, I think you would say, alcoholism, which is completely linked to all of the other kind of issues that, yeah. that he struggled with. He talks about, um, he talks in his autobiography about having no self-confidence as a footballer and therefore needing what he calls continuously Dutch courage. Um, he said he, he's always felt different because he was an orphan, because he was a black guy growing up in Dublin, because there weren't many of him around. And he says that drinking eased the pain and the loneliness. And when it eases that for him, it becomes incredibly addictive. Uh, and he... Sh- he didn't just struggle to, with those demons. He, he completely failed to manage them. Yeah, and it it didn't go away with becoming a successful footballer. I mean, you know, his, no. his career had its not necessarily ups and downs because I think you know by comparison with most careers, it was a very good one. But it certainly had spots at which you would say that it could have been handled better. He could have maybe achieved more um, had his life gone a different way. I think uh, the other thing it's worth saying is that when he got to Manchester United and got into the first team, he found himself in a situation and with people that allowed that side to flourish. You know, it's it's the expression is misery loves company. I don't think it it often comes from a place of misery, but it doesn't feel like that at the time. And if you've got people who are willing to go out there with you and you're in an environment and there are pubs that will let you drink till all, all hours, etc., and you don't have the situation we have now, this is important, you don't have people with camera phones watching you sit in a pub with a table full of glasses with three of your teammates taking pictures of you. Well, there's that very famous story about Wayne Rooney being reported back to David Moyes when he was seen at McDonald's having a Big Mac. These players used to go out after training to a pub in Manchester and sit there from the moment they got in at two o'clock in the afternoon until they physically got pushed out the door. So these these environments and these worlds, they don't happen as much. The black holes aren't there to quite the same degree, but they are still there. And McGrath, unfortunately, however, whenever you talk about his football, He's always the poster child for yeah, but, and that's yeah. that's what he is. Yeah, he. The demons didn't go away after football, but they certainly were present during football as well. And he spent seven years at Old Trafford, um, after leaving St Pat's in in Ireland, not wanted by Alex Ferguson, Dave. Um, and, yeah, and that drinking culture was very much a factor in that decision. Yeah, I when Ferguson came into that club, if you read any of Fergie's myriad of books that are out there or various others from the time I think that the the drinking cold culture is slightly exaggerated because it makes it sound like that sort of Ron Atkinson legacy of a team was basically all 11 of them were out all the time but there was definitely a group of three or four individuals and part of the problem that McGrath had is someone like Brian Robson could go out with him could match him pint for pint but was then quite happy to get up in the morning and go training, no problem whatsoever, and do it all again. Whereas McGrath never wanted to get up. He never wanted to go to go to bed in the first place. He was he was in that horrible position of 
it went from a want to a need. And that's that's the issue, really. And Ferguson, when he came into that club, the drinking culture was one of very many things that needed to be sorted. And McGrath was a casualty of that, as were a couple of others. You, you know, I would argue Norman Whiteside yeah, was also a, a casualty of that. But I think, I think the thing is, when you look at the career McGrath had, you do wonder... How good would he have been off the post? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's very difficult in hindsight, isn't it, to mm. split the two? But the qualities he had, which we'll certainly come on to, would have made him a pretty extraordinary player. You know, yeah. He is in my eyes anyway, but there's a certain amount of bias within that. Um, he joined my club, Villa, Dan, with with plenty to prove. You know, Ferguson had made his choice. The booze played a part in that, and his knees played a part in that. Yeah, and, and that he, was an issue that never went away. No, and he, he joined Asseville at the age of 29, mm. which given that he was a barely functioning alcoholic at the time, that could easily have been the beginning of a very quick decline and the beginning of a very quick end, certainly professionally. And also, we have to say personally as well, um, because there was an element that whatever addiction had, had taken hold of him, football was the antidote to it football was the only thing keeping him as a barely functioning alcoholic from a non-functioning alcoholic and Premier League football was really not the place for that to be no. sent up so for him to succeed at Villa and he was there for, as you say seven years between 29 and 36 yep. 200 play over 250 games with his knees as they were never mind with his mind and his alcohol addiction as it was is pretty near miracle um and it was, you're right, it was a surprise. And I think that's, I mean, I'm not an Aston Villa fan, but I think that's part of the reason why he's so loved is that by that stage, people kind of knew. They didn't know everything about the addiction, but they kind of knew that something wasn't right, even if it was just knowing about his knees. So the fact that there was that surprise element and the fact that they could see that he was doing all he could to give mm. what he had at that point. He, he was broken. Yes. And he was putting all the pieces back together on the pitch for long enough to be absolutely brilliant. And they and were successful. Villa yeah. were successful, they second were. in the yeah. Premier League League Cup. You know, they were things that he was a very integral part of. Oh, very much so. He was, um, he was a wonderful player. You know, I get, I get emotional thinking back to just watching him play because he was sensational. And if he were around now, you know, notwithstanding the differences in style of play and pace of the game, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, but if you just took the fact that Villa were at least early on in the Premier League years. Um, you know, part of the conversation, mm. certainly for the first half of the season. Yeah. yeah. And the level of fame and attention that Paul McGrath would have had if that were happening now, mm. he would have been genuine icon. Yeah. yeah. He, he was the, the, a world-class defender in the, the Premier League when people weren't really necessarily looking that closely at Villa. And you talk about the spotlight element of it because the portrait in the, in the book starts with... Um, him playing for Villa in 1989 and playing with sweatbands on his wrists that it then appeared were covering up self-harming cuts with a Stanley knife a few days earlier. Now, in today's age, that would be known about. That would have caught on. It, to be honest, it would have big. It would have given McGrath more help. It would have gone. It would have gone undiagnosed for less time, which would have been hugely helpful for him. But the fact that it wasn't known, actually at that time, it might not have helped him moving forward, but it actually helped him as a footballer because it enabled him when he was on the pitch 
to be Paul McGrath, the footballer, for a brief window in his otherwise pretty dark existence. Yeah. Um, he got his recognition, though. Award-winningly good defender. Yes. <laughs> which is um, still a rarity now, I think, if you take the, the, the award mm. that he won. And how many defenders have got yeah, that to their name? Exactly, Certainly yeah. not many. Um, Villa supporters still refer to him as God. And that isn't about flaws, and it's not about character. That, no. that is... I can tell you firsthand about quality. He was a hell of a player, Dave. Mm. And I, I mean, we'll we'll come on to his his Ireland career, but he was. We we went through a season where Leicester won the Premier League title, and people rolled out and got thousands of retweets for that joke about Golo Kante, and how much how much of the world he was covering. That joke was about Paul McGrath back in the early nineties. He was when when Fergie let him go. It was nothing to do with ability, nothing to do with ability. But the problem was, he couldn't he couldn't get himself at that real top tier club, that very top tier club for a sustained period of time, because of all the baggage, because of everything else. But he was there. There's so many as somebody who consumes a lot of football autobiographies and all that sort of thing. So many players say the hardest player they ever played against was Paul McGrath, and that's not hard as in he was, you know, all over them and elbows all over the place. His reading of the game was absolute. I mean, there is no higher compliment I can pay it than it was Italian esque at mm. its peak. It really, really was. Yeah, it absolutely was, and it was is defence by instinct, by ability to read the game, and it's that ability to read the game that really defines his time at Villa. Um, it's the, the outstanding memory that we have is that we had this player who could barely move mm. um, certainly by the end and yet even by that point he was still a, a yard quicker to the ball than everybody else because yeah. he knew where it was going yeah. yeah. Um, at his peak he was never a last ditch tackler no no, because he didn't need to be clean shorts defender yeah he was he, he could back, do it comes back to that, to that Maldini quote you're saying Italian style defender it comes down to that Age or Maldini quote about if I'm having to make a tackle, I've not done my job properly. Yeah. It was exactly that. It was football brain to the nth degree. It was perception above mm. perspiration, which is all he wanted to be. And to be honest, the only way he could have been at that point. Yeah. So this wasn't. He he was he basically had the wherewithal to realise that the only way he could function as a middling footballer was to be. A, a breathtaking footballer in terms of what he did. He made he took everything he was good at and managed to make an incredibly successful career out of it. Whereas, given his off-field problems, it's actually a huge, impressive feat that people probably underestimate now. Mm. Yeah. Um, some of the touches he made through that reading of the game and the ability to just be that one step ahead of everybody, it made him look quite spectacular. You know, the fact that he didn't have the fitness and, and wasn't necessarily the player he might have been, but was still seeing the game in that way. Yeah, he was the king of the defensive back heel. Kind of made him untouchable, yeah. didn't it? It did. It made him otherworldly yeah. in that you 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 couldn't replicate that. You couldn't replicate that sort of perception. It was completely innate. Another portrait in the book, Bobby Moore, they say exactly the same about Bobby Moore. You couldn't replicate that. There's, there's no way of doing no. that because by the time you'd even thought about it, McGrath had done it. Yeah. So... It's impossible to replicate, and as you say, it, it, king of the back heel, the defense, almost a defensive playmaker at times. Very much so. And 
That is incredibly endearing, isn't it? Yeah. Mm. In the 90s, there was a, a TV feature. It might have been in a, a science programme. It might even have been in football coverage somewhere. Where they had Paul Merson. And they were trying to get under the skin of what vision was. And he was their vision player. The, the guy in the vision seat for this, for this feature. And it's a really interesting look at what it means to be able to see the game differently. And they talked about how it was like slowing down time and mm. that that instinct and that ability to read the situation was genuinely a case of seeing things almost at a different pace to everybody else. Mm. Paul McGrath, for me, along with probably Franco Berezi, is the player who was the defensive version of that. You know, that's that's the level that I put his ability mm. to read the game at. He was genuinely extraordinarily different. Because mm-hmm. actually that, that idea, personally, I think that idea of slowing down time I think that does them a disservice because that's impossible. So mm. take that out of the equation. That's mm. that's exactly not what they're doing. What they're doing is understanding how quickly everything is yeah. moving, but it's just about that perception. I think that does him a disservice because he he was he was moving slower than everyone else. He was the one moving slower. Yeah. So the mind has to be doubly quick. Merson exactly the same because their bodies, especially towards the end of their career, weren't moving as fast as everyone else. They not only had to have a better perception just to be on everyone's even keel, they then went beyond that to that higher level, which is, if not unique, certainly very, very rare. We've spoken about Ronaldo already in this series and Mm -hmm. other names that have come up have included Leo Messi and Cristiano Ronaldo and and, and players who have a real sort of athleticism and an all-round game and a dedication and drive that makes them the players they were. People like Merson and McGrath showed that there's a different way as well, isn't there? You know, there's a, there's mm. a different reason, a different set of reasons to love a footballer. And they also they also are standard bearers for an era that is probably, if not past, certainly passing. Um, that is precisely why, why we look back at some of those players. Matt Letizia is another one who's yeah. in the book. We look back at them with such nostalgia because it is very hard for those sort of players now, those sort of personalities now. They are a dying breed for positive and negative connotations to that but yes they are a dying breed and that's why we look back at someone like McGrath with such fondness because he not only is he impossible to replicate but he is he's a, he's a non-entity now he would be playing Sunday league football now unfortunately yeah by the end of his career um, he was at Derby County and yes genuinely needed players to take the ball off him yeah. pretty much off his yeah. toes well I mean even at Villa he was, he was only defending. one of the reasons he was successful at Villa is because he had this before Arsene Wenger came along, he had this idea of an individual training regime, which was effectively not training on a Monday, yeah. Wednesday or Friday. It was yeah. two-day-week training. He had a back three with him as well. Which, <laughs> you know, that was another sort of tactical approach that seems to kind of help him for a short period. Um, McGrath is a fiercely proud Irishman, Dave. Mm. And he did that plenty of justice, despite one or two misdemeanours in his Ireland career. Yeah, but I think even reading his book... the. His book is harrowing at times, but the incidents when he's with Ireland, you can always you can you can feel you can feel pain on two levels. He always feels like that's where he's let a country down. That you, you really take that sense from it, and he was absolutely phenomenal at times for Ireland. He he, it was almost. He saved his best performances. I mean, I assume we're going on to talk about 1994 and the World Cup there, where 
he was that that game against Italy. He was peerless. Mm. He was absolutely sensational. And the funny thing is, in that game, he was up against a forward line and a team who were who were who were quick, who were really interchangeable, who were were working situations that he wasn't having to face before. So, funnily enough, in that game, he did actually at times become a bit of a last ditch defender. He was the one mm. turning, getting his foot in there, and he proved he could do that just as well as all of the other aspects of his game. Mm. And that's what's extraordinary, really, that. You, you can talk about how limited he was because of what was going on in his personal life. But as soon as he was on the pitch, despite his own mental approach and his, his, his own shyness, his own restrictions he placed on himself, he was actually pretty limitless as a footballer, genuinely. And that's a very, very rare thing. And I mean, even more so in the modern game where players are, are, are quite pigeonholed in defence, right? This is what you do. This is your job. You're you're the one who carries the water. You're the one who's allowed to push five or six yards a bit further up the pitch and play it to a midfielder. And he could do anything. Yeah. Could do anything. Yeah, he was a fantastic talent as well as you know, mm. a, a, a very good, very perceptive reader of the game. Uh, just to wrap up, Dan, is he unique amongst the other profiles in the book? Yeah, there are two which people who are huge fans of them, and, and it actually works quite nicely with, with you two here because you love Paul McGrath and Dave, you love Paul Gascoigne. They are the two in the book that reading them, you might think, hang on, this feels a little bit negative. This doesn't feel like it's celebrating all they had. That is completely deliberate because I think he is unique. And I think what he represents is that however successful you are, however talented you are, however much you're adored and vaunted, it is impossible to overcome mental illness if that's what takes hold of you. He's tried to commit suicide on four occasions. He's been divorced twice. He's had to rebuild relationships with his children. They are the things that are most important to Paul McGrath. Not drinking every day is the thing that's important to Paul McGrath. And that's why I wanted him included. And that's why I think he's unique because I think he should be a reminder that that is the same with all footballers and with all people. They're not all going to have the, the you know the, the demons that Paul McGrath's got, but they might have some of them. And it is unfair just to look at footballers as what they do on the football pitch. It is criminally unfair. Um, seems like a, a slightly negative place. To yeah, be. the clock's against us, so so we will leave it there. Uh, next time we're going back into the dugout for the penultimate podcast of the series. Thank you, Dan. Thank you, and thank you, Dave. Thank you. Portrait of an Icon is available to buy from opibooks.co.uk right now.